Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, June 2nd, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 23. Jeremiah is given to preach that because the people of Judah and Jerusalem have not listened to the words of the covenant that the Lord made with them, they will receive punishment from the Lord. That message proves to be less than popular among the people, earning Jeremiah persecution even from the residents of his own hometown. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us Pastor Bart Day. Pastor Day serves as the CEO and president for the Lutheran Church Extension Fund in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Day, welcome to Sharp Iron. Hey, good morning, Pastor Apple. Thanks for having me today. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you. We really appreciate you being the underwriter for Sharper Iron and helping to provide for this uh, outreach on KFUO. Well, that's our pleasure. We uh, certainly love to support the work of Worldwide KFUO and that special work of proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth and especially excited to be able to underwrite this show uh, and the great work that you do and all of your guests and uh, walking our listeners through the Bible each and every day. It's a real privilege to to be a part of this ministry and to to read the scriptures every day. What a what a blessing that has been for me, and I pray for our listeners as well. We are in Jeremiah chapter eleven today, Pastor Day. As we get started with this chapter, what context about the prophet's ministry, his book, his history do we need to know going in? Well, I mean, you gave me a great prophet to jump into. Uh, I mean, this guy when you when you read Jeremiah, you just kind of your heart reels for a guy that is uh, completely embodied and embedded with his people, uh, the Lord speaking to him uh, to call these people to repentance, um, and such a difficult uh, road and, and task in front of him. So, you know, the context, I like to go in round numbers, so I always put Jeremiah around 600. You've already had the fall of the northern kingdom, so Israel has already uh, been destroyed by the Assyrians in 722. Jeremiah is less than 100 years or so around there called now to be the prophet. He's proclaiming that the southern kingdom and Jerusalem itself is going to fall now um, at the hands of the Babylonians. And we know that will happen around 587. Um, And that'll be somewhat kind of short lived, excuse me, in time where Cyrus will then invite the, uh, the people to return from exile back to Judah. Uh, But Jeremiah, especially today, you kind of have a new section where uh, really, I guess, chapters 11 through 13, you really hone in on this pagan worship that the people have broken the covenant, the Torah that has been given uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai, and then certainly plenty of references to, to Deuteronomy here and kind of the blessings and curses of Moses kind of reconfirming the covenant with the people. So I would say this is really about a broken cycle. It is God's covenant with the people and their rejection time and time again, and Isaiah um, and other prophets calling the people north and south with Jeremiah to repentance. Um, But unlike you've had in like chapter 7 of Jeremiah uh, last week, 
where there was this call to repentance. In chapter 11, there is no more call to repentance. You just have these these echoing kind of phrases about the words and hear and listen and obey and heed and do because now the judgment and the verdict is being proclaimed by Jeremiah uh, and how difficult for him to speak that uh, to people who, as you say, and we'll get to a little bit later in these verses today, uh, his own people who now desire uh, not just to have a beef with God, but to have a beef with God's messenger and actually desiring to take Jeremiah's life. Yeah, the there are that you were mentioning all those verbs that get repeated, and it's pretty pretty obvious how they show up a time and time again. Hear, listen, obey, do, and then related to that, the covenant that was given that they were to listen to and obey and to do. That that Exodus background, I think, is really going to be important for us to keep in mind as we hear Jeremiah, you know, put those words in front of the people again. And I think even, you know, as, as we get later on in the text, as Jeremiah sees himself in the line of prophets extending from Moses, how he experiences the rejection of the people, they're complaining to Jeremiah, much like the people complained to Moses. And, and Moses will say, you know, your beef's not with me. Your beef is with the Lord. Jeremiah, too, will experience that same persecution. So I really think that that Exodus background that covenant background, that's more the language that Jeremiah is going to pick up. That's really going to be a, important for us to keep in mind as we begin to read this text today. Any more introductory comments before we jump into the text? No, I think that that's, I think that's great. All right. So we're in Jeremiah chapter 11, beginning at the first verse. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice, and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as at this day. And then I answered, So be it, Lord. And the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. I'll pause there. Pastor Day, as, as we look at this opening section, again, th that Exodus background really seems important. Hear the words of this covenant. Speak to the men of Jude and Jerusalem in verse 3. Thus says the Lord. He brings up the matter of, of cursing. What What is this covenant? What's the background that we need to know to understand what Jeremiah is preaching here? Well, the Lord God made the covenant um to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the promise had been had been given to them that God was calling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees uh, to be the lineage and offspring of these people who would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, and these people would have this home and this land. Um, we know as that story progresses, finally we arrive with Moses, 
and, and the covenant that is given on Mount Sinai, these promises that God will forever be their God and they will be his people. And this call to faithfulness that they they listen to his word, um, that they obey, that they heed, that they believe, that they live um, all of this is is wrapped up in these words. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. Eleven through five, that first chunk, that it's a very personal message that this word comes to Jeremiah. Um, as you said, I mean, it comes in a significant way to Moses at Mount Sinai. Um, it's interesting, in verse three, where the Lord says, "The Lord, the God of Israel." Um, elucidating who he actually is, that he is the true God. Um, later, Jeremiah is going to speak to them about all the false gods that they that they have now taken up in the worship of Baal. And so because of this, cursed. I mean, now you have yeah. like Genesis imagery. I mean, Genesis is still alive. Um, it's not the same cursing of man, but now they don't hear. And really that Deuteronomy 27, those that idea of Moses on Mount Ebal, that you know, that they are to live and keep this covenant that God has given them and that there are blessings and there are curses. And that's something interesting. I think Pastor Apple in this whole wrestling with all of chapter 11, that that God is not neutral in his covenant. And I think we love the idea that God is neutral, right? He like blesses or he's just like neutral and he doesn't really right. do anything. Mm. And And this isn't the way it happens. I mean, when these gifts are given, when the covenant is given, it will be a blessing for those who believe and, and hold on to these words. I mean, you have that in verse 3, right? You know, the man who does not hear the words of this covenant, you think about the third commandment, you know, I'm going to gladly hear and learn it. But if there is no gladly hearing and learning it, these things now become unto the people, they become a curse. Um, and God is not neutral in his in his punishment of the people, both the Northern Kingdom and now the Southern Kingdom. And to think that they were bad people, but that he would use people that they thought were even far worse than them, the Assyrians and Babylonians. I mean, can you get much worse than that as far as pagans? And yet God will use them as the instrument um, to execute his judgment and justice, <clears throat> always so that the people will be restored. But yeah, those are just a few thoughts from what you asked about the covenant. Well, sure. And I, I think, you know, I mean, what you're saying about the very personal nature of this text is very, very appropriate. And you see how in this preaching, you know, cursed be the man. Sure, that, that starts off on, maybe it sounds a more negative note, but that word cursed does recall the Genesis 3 text, and it does recall the Deuteronomy text, where there are blessings and curses, a reminder of the fullness of this covenant. But but I think Jeremiah really is given to preach that covenant in its fullest sense of of gift. I mean, notice in verse four, particular, it stands out to me that, you know, this is the covenant that the Lord commanded the fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace in Exodus 20, where we get what we usually call the 10 commandments or this, the, mm -hmm. the 10 words. It's so important, I think, to remember that there, before you ever get to, you shall have no other gods, the Lord tells his people what he did for them. You know, that he's the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that, and, and Jeremiah repeats that here, so you will be my people and I will be your God. The establishing of that relationship of the true God and his people, 
that's the that's what Jeremiah is calling the people back to what the Lord desires here. It's not just you better obey me or else, but it really is that matter of the gift that the Lord wants to give to his people. Absolutely. And God is that I may confirm the oath that I swore. I mean, God is keeping his part uh, and doesn't desire to punish them. Um, And yet the land that's flowing with milk and honey, as at this day, um, is going to be lost. And that covenantal promise of the land is is significant to them. And, you know, prophets like Ezekiel will, will come later and talk about how horrible it is that they're, that they're kind of ripped, ripped away from the land. Um, And how amazing we talk about the personalness of that. How about the personal response of Jeremiah at the end? And then I answered, amen. And I mean, I don't know that we often think about how the prophets really feel. Um, about him being faithful and seeing the faithlessness and him desiring them to repent and turn and change and the Lord revealing these things to Jeremiah and him sharing them with the people and they're just sort of constant resentment and unwillingness to listen, obey, or heed or do. Um, I think just the gravity of that upon Jeremiah is something that... uh, we don't often think of. I think we think of the Lord's messengers as some great glamorous thing that happens. Um, man, I would not want to have been an Old Testament prophet, and it's <laughs> awful difficult being a pastor today in the world that um, maybe doesn't want to hear about the covenant and the promises and gifts of God any more than the people did of old. Yeah, Jeremiah of of the Old Testament prophets, I think Jeremiah is going to give us the best picture into that inner life of the prophet, you know, almost it's like you're getting to read Jeremiah's Facebook post or Twitter feed sometimes <laughs> where he he just puts out there precisely what he thinks. The beauty of it is that he he puts it out there not just for, for you and for me and for the people of Judah, but he puts it out there to the Lord. He actually addresses it to the Lord. And, and you see both extremes here in, in verse five, as you pointed out the word, amen, you know, so be it, let it be to me according to your word, Lord, let, let this word happen. That great faithfulness, the confidence that's there that the, that Jeremiah has because the Lord has spoken to him. And then of course, by the end of the text and, and particularly as the book goes on, we're going to see Jeremiah also in the, the darkness of, of almost despair and, and doubt and mm-hmm. trouble because of what the Lord's word is bringing upon him. And, and to see it in the prophet Jeremiah, I know for me as a pastor, strengthens me. And also just as a, as a Christian to see how, you know, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament went from, from both, from the, the confidence in the Lord's word to also the moments of, of doubt, especially when that word was bringing him trouble. It's, it's quite comforting, I think, for us to see still in our Christian lives today. Absolutely. And when you speak about sort of the fullness of the covenant and the repentance for the sake of the gospel and the gift. I mean, in verse seven, where, you know, he warned them persistently, or he warned them over and over again, the Hebrew text says. I mean, I think sometimes we can read these prophets and act like, yeah, you know, God just like woke up one day and didn't like the people anymore and just decided it was over. I mean, mm-hmm. how slow to anger, how patient and abounding and steadfast love that this went on for generations and generations and centuries of the prophets calling them to repentance before we get to the verdict that God will enact upon them. So 
again, that, that Jeremiah is given that to be the kind of persistent voice of God calling them, both with law and gospel. Um, and, and again, in verse 8, that what they did is communal. I mean, now we've shifted from just, you know, they did not obey and, and they did not incline their ear, but everyone is walking in this stubbornness of evil. Um, and I guess you can see that as kind of a generic statement. I mean, what's the stubbornness of evil that all of us have in our hearts? I mean, there's plenty of things to stack up against the Ten Commandments. But in this context with Jeremiah, I mean, the stubbornness of their hearts has now manifested itself in complete pagan worship and worship of Baal. Um, and that's that is something that God will not abide, and he is a jealous God visiting the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Um, and, and that's why it's maybe interesting, even that comment, we skipped over it way back in oh, chapter or verse 4, about calling them out of the iron furnace, this reference to Egypt, which iron furnace gets used in Deuteronomy a time or two. Um, you know, iron is, forging iron takes an awful lot of heat and energy a lot more than other metals um and here they are so i mean to use that image of them that when they were in egypt they were being like forged and you know kind of melded and recreated into something and i'm not sure that that was a good thing and that they were sort of absorbing the things of egypt and so this iron furnace that they've come out of now all of these generations later um, the stubbornness of their evil hearts and the pagan and idolatrous worship uh, that continues, even in the temple in Jerusalem, which I know you won't get until Ezekiel. But I mean, when Ezekiel gets the vision and sees what's actually happening there, I mean, it almost is, you know, he says he saw like scribbly things that look like creatures on the wall. I mean, it's just like Egyptian hieroglyphs. I mean, what do they actually have going on, like in the actual temple, in the holy city in Jerusalem itself? Um, that God is now going to, to finally bring his wrath and announce the verdict upon them, even though he's been slow and even though there will still be hope. And Jeremiah, again, proclaims that hope an awful lot um, throughout, although you really you don't get much of that in chapter 11. Yeah, you kind of have to wait a little bit to get the the good chunk of it from Jeremiah, though there are, you know, there's hints of it here and there, some Absolutely. places a little more clearly. And certainly, I think that reminder of what the Lord had done for them in the past in calling them out of the iron furnace as a as a holding out of hope of what he he would do for his people now, what he desires to do to pull them out of the, if we say the iron furnace of their idolatry. And I don't that that phrase iron furnace is an interesting one. And just thinking what we talked about yesterday in chapter 10 and how the Lord there you know mocks the idol worship of the people. And as you said, that's the real problem. That's the stubbornness of evil that's really there among the people of Judah and Jerusalem is their idolatry. But the way that he described it yesterday and the actual process of idol making, which I, I suppose dealt more with you know, using like an axe to carve up a piece of wood more than an iron furnace. But still that idea of, you know, we would forge our own idols and, and the Lord would pull us out of slavery, slavery in Egypt and ultimately slavery to our idolatry and give us the true freedom 
which is, that is what he described there, that I'll be your God, you'll be my people. That's real freedom. Everything else, all this idolatry that his people are digging into right now in the 6th century BC, that's real slavery. And, and the Lord would call them out of that slavery, just as he did for his people in the exodus from Egypt. Absolutely. And the Moses reference in the covenant there, you know, hey, Moses, uh, we know you've been up on Mount Sinai for a little while, but uh, hey, like th- this like bull, it just like jumped right out of the fire, it just like forged itself right there. And so we thought we'd just maybe, you know, take up with this golden calf for a little while because you'd been delayed up there for a long time. And, you know, there was a lot of smoke and fire on that mountain and weren't sure exactly if you were coming down. So it just magically sort of forged itself. I mean, the the idea of purity in Israel is is somewhat laughable from from the moments that the covenant and the promises are given. The idolatry and stubbornness of people's sinful nature is immediately manifest, and it it will just be over and over again where people will intercede, prophets will be called and and, and brought to speak the word of the Lord. Uh, to lead people out of their their sinful stubbornness of their evil hearts. Let's move a little bit farther along in the text before we go to our break. We, we left off at verse 9. This is where I'll pick up again. Again, the Lord said to me, A conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. I'll pause there. That was through verse 13 of the chapter. Pastor Day, verse 9, it's an interesting phrase there, at least in English. The Lord said mm-hmm. to me, a conspiracy exists. What's the, the word conspiracy is, I mean, something in the background? What What is Jeremiah or what does the Lord mean by the word conspiracy here? Well, it is intriguing. I mean, I I think that as a political metaphor, with a spiritual sense, I don't know that there's another time that this actually appears in Scripture. I mean, a conspiracy is like all these people agree, and so a pretty powerful metaphor that that Jeremiah would use that everybody in Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem are now are now conspiring um, against the Lord and against Jeremiah. So. I certainly think there's this spiritual sense here, but it's not it's not as if this was just sort of a one off, unintentional, haphazard, you know, like every once in a while we kinda got stubborn and we had some idolatrous activity. Um this was very intentional and there was agreement on their parts um that they would that they would do these things, that they would turn back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which is interesting that they're you know, contemporaries, the contemporaries of Jeremiah's time were doing the same as the forefathers had done. Again, it wasn't, it wasn't something new. 
Yeah, reflecting on that word conspiracy a little bit, and as you were talking there, this, you know, they've all kind of agreed to commit idolatry together. Just thinking through the, and I know, you know, Martin Luther didn't write his his small catechism until the 1500s, but but thinking through the way the, that Luther talks about the, the commandments, you know, you've got the first commandment clearly in view here, but the way he talks about commandments nine and 10 with the matter of coveting and those things that happen in the background, the scheming, the enticing and all that, it's almost like the, for the people of Judah and Jerusalem with this thought of a conspiracy is that they, they've run the whole gambit here. They, they've, they've schemed, they've conspired, they've all agreed that, okay, we're going to commit idolatry. And it, it just shows how wholesale of a apostasy has really happened among the people of Judah and Jerusalem. One of the, the commentaries that I was reading made a note in verse 6 that where, where Jeremiah is told by the Lord to go proclaim in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. It, it made the comment that you know, sometimes we, we picture Jeremiah's ministry primarily in Jerusalem and in the temple particularly, but at least here in, in 11.6, we have this picture that at least in some sense, he was somewhat itinerant. He, he moved around mm-hmm. such that his, his preaching is, you know, it's for all the people of Judah and Jerusalem. They are all together, as you mentioned earlier, communal. They're all together in this. They're conspiring together to commit idolatry, to, to engage in this false worship, and to ultimately fall away from the Lord. Absolutely. Luther is quite brilliant on the first commandment, how You know, the first commandment envelops all of the others. So to keep the first is to keep the rest. But to break any of two through ten are also to break the first because they all seem rooted in these problems of, you know, that I have faith, hope, and trust, and love in things other than the one true God. And that's certainly the case of what's happening in Jeremiah's day. And again, it's it's an agreement and it's not just a one-off occasion and it's not like it just started yesterday. Um, This is a very intentional move on their part. Um, And it's interesting because I I know you stopped at uh, verse 13. Um, I kind of go through 14, but in that last section, when you get to verse 11, you know, there's really a threefold verdict here when you start with, you know, therefore thus says the Lord. Um, this disaster is going to come that they can't escape. The North didn't escape, um, and you better not think that you're going to escape either. But then these threefold things, so I'm not going to listen. You know, during the Exodus, God did listen. I mean, he listened to their pleas. He heard their cries when they were in Egypt, and they wanted out and wanted to be in this relationship with him that brought them out of the iron furnace. And now... He's not going to listen to them, Um, especially when they're out crying off to their gods because there is no God to deliver them. Because these gods in whom they trust, this is what you were talking about earlier from like chapter 10, these gods cannot save them. I mean, God will mock them. These things don't actually exist. So you've set up this entire way that you're going to worship and where you're going to put your faith, hope, and trust, and love in all of these things, and actually they can't save you. Um, But then that third part, which is really in verse 14, which I'll just read. I mean, we didn't, but I think it's part of that section because now there's going to be no prophetic intercession either. So, I mean, it's not only that I'm not going to listen, and there are no gods actually to to deliver you, but now there's no prophetic intercession. So, therefore, 
Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. Um, that That is, um, I mean, one, you just think about how Jeremiah himself digests that, but but what do people actually hear when Jeremiah, as you say, maybe not just in the temple, but he's kind of itinerant, like out on the street, like proclaiming this to people, um, that the prophets, there's no one that's going to kind of pray on their behalf or lift them up. You talk about Israel reduced to one in Moses and God dealing with Moses, you know, and even sometimes being merciful to the people only because of Moses. God doing this also through the prophets and even with Jeremiah, but now it's no more. I mean, the time has come for the verdict to be delivered. Yeah, those are some really terrifying words there from the Lord. You know, I'm not going to listen. Don't pray for them, Jeremiah. The the drastic judgment that the Lord is taking upon his people for their idolatry. We're going to keep talking about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Jeremiah chapter 11 with Pastor Bart Day. We'll be right back. Please stick around. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org slash careers. In 1924, by the grace of God, KFUO began broadcasting the good news of Christ for you. A long part of this history is bringing you worship services to hear and receive the good gifts of God in His words. This Sunday morning, join us for services from Ascension Lutheran Church in St. Louis at 815 and Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Chesterfield at 1030, as well as Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere at 930. Hear Christ for you in Sunday morning services on KFUO. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, June 2nd. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 23 with Pastor Bart Day, CEO, President of the Lutheran Church Extension Fund in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Day, prior to the break, we're looking at this middle section here in Jeremiah chapter 11. And we left off talking about what I said are some rather terrifying words that the Lord will not listen to them, that the Lord tells Jeremiah, don't even pray for this people. And you, you brought up the intercessory ministry of Moses earlier, that how important that was, and really throughout the history of the people of Israel, that these prophets are always there proclaiming the word of God, praying on behalf of the people. And now for the Lord to say, I'm not going to listen to your prayers, and Jeremiah, don't bother to pray for them because I'm not going to listen to that either, is a rather terrifying thing. Is You were talking earlier, the, the persistent nature of the Lord. This Jeremiah is not the first prophet that he's sent to his people. He's sent prophet after prophet after prophet to them. And, and now for him to say, I'm not going to listen to your prayers, it, it reminds me, although it's the other side of the coin, I suppose, it reminds me of those, what, what I think are some of the most terrifying words in the book of Amos, where the Lord talks about a famine of the word of the Lord and, and how, you know, when, when the Lord stops talking to you and when the Lord stops listening to you, that's far, far worse 
than when he's proclaiming these words of judgment from Jeremiah. At least when he's proclaiming the words of judgment, he's talking to you and he's hearing you. But for him to say, in Amos, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And here in Jeremiah, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. That's the real terror of the law that would strike us. No, absolutely. I mean, you want God's presence no matter um, how it's coming to you as law or as gospel. I know we prefer the gospel part, but he's there. He's working. He's active. He's using the law for the sake of repentance and contrition and renewal that he might heal us and make us whole. So when God is living and active, um, this is a wonderful thing for us to receive, whether we're being chastised or built up, whatever it is. But his absence, I mean, the withdrawal of God or God shutting his mouth or departing from you completely. I mean, this is at least for some of the church fathers, right? This is like the image of hell itself, yeah. like the complete absence of God, that he, he just leaves you and, and forsakens you kind of in this void of nothing. And so, you know, I don't know, I don't know, Pastor Apple, how we equate this today. I mean, I'm thinking of my own congregation. I mean, imagine if the pastor just showed up one Sunday, as bad as things are in the midst of the pandemic and everything's kind of crazy and all the craziness happening in the world today. And if he just came and he just kind of said, you know, not preaching and proclaiming the word of God to you anymore. The famine has now come. God is shutting his mouth. I mean, I don't know how you... I mean, could there be anything more terrifying or horrific than the withdrawal of God and his word and his promise? And yet this is what Jeremiah is like forbidden to do. You don't pray for them. You don't lift up their cry. You don't pray on their behalf. Because I'm not going to listen to them when they call to me in their time of trouble. And the trouble is coming, and it's going to be very real, and it's going to be quite painful for the people. Um, and it won't, and it won't, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, it's kind of short-lived, and Cyrus allows them to come back. But, Lord, you read Ezra and Nehemiah's greatest stories as those are. It's not like it was a glamorous return either. Um, when When they come back, it will just... This working of God in the in the peoples of Israel and Judah's lives will be will be long, long lived um, into the intertestamental period, and will certainly uh, shape the way the people will be prepared for Jesus, the Messiah, to come. And in some ways, the way they will mishear and misunderstand um, what Jesus is saying to them um, about the fulfilling of the Old Testament, and and will make it quite challenging. So. Yeah, this is pretty, this is just, I mean, this is as bad as it gets when God withdraws his prophets from us when they don't, when they don't speak to us anymore. And so we should rejoice that pastors and faithful preachers of the word are proclaiming the law and the gospel to us and that we open our ears and that we listen and are attentive to calls to repentance and renewal uh, and gladly receive and hear the words of forgiveness that are found in Christ alone. Right. The, the St. Paul in second Corinthians, and I think the writer of the Hebrews does this as well, talks about how the day of salvation is today. You know, don't, don't presume upon the grace of God because he's, he's speaking to you today. He's giving you his word today. So listen and believe today because that day is coming when it will be too late. I, I'm also reminded of the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 13 of the man with the fig tree that doesn't bear any fruit. And that, that vine dresser comes along and says, don't cut it down just yet. Give me a year to dig around it, to fertilize it. 
And then next year, if there's no fruit, fine, cut it down. But but give me this year, which is certainly a, a great picture of the long-suffering grace of God, but also what we see in Jeremiah as well, that that day is coming. And so while you have God's ear, while you have his word, speak to him, listen to him, trust in him for salvation today, while while that day of salvation is yours. So let's... Let's move a little bit farther into the text. We, we, you read verse 14. I'll, I'll pick up there again and read a little farther before we get into the, the matter of Jeremiah and his uh, residence of his hometown. So Jeremiah eleven fourteen, Therefore, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. I'll pause there because the next verse does begin really a Mm -hmm. new section, Jeremiah's words. Pastor Day, especially in in verse 15, you know, what right has my beloved in my house when she's done many vile deeds? I think, again, this is speaking, again, about the idolatry of the people and even within the house of the Lord. And, and what right does does his beloved have to be in his house? Well, none. It, it's all gift anyways. And, and certainly the people have taken the Lord's gift and completely misused it. And so he's going to bring the disaster that he's declared. Well, absolutely. Um, yeah, she has no right at all in the house. Um so, you know, when you're the president and CEO of LCF, I, I have to confess I don't brush up on my Hebrew all the time. And that is one that is one messy verse to try to translate. <laughs> verse 15. I mean, it is uh, that is a that is a rough one. But but she doesn't have any right. And yet there are these interesting things here. I mean, do you have hints of like Hosea? You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to be faithful even in the midst of unfaithfulness. Um, I mean, the Hosea's reality of his life i mean a living proclamation of 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 a god who allows the unlovable back into his house is 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 amazing too but this these vile deeds this wicked scheming i think back to this conspiracy and then i mean can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom no i mean i desire mercy not sacrifice sacrifice will be dismissed now i mean this is kind of hard stop you're going to be out of the place where you do sacrifice and even if you thought you could do it there is all there was always faith with the sacrifice it was not purely just the ritualistic action i mean you think about the the stuff in leviticus of of bringing the sacrificial animal or gift whatever it was and the penitent placing his hand on his head and confessing sin to the priest and this idea of it the transference before the sacrifice. I mean, all of this stuff is done. And so there's going to be no exalting at all because this is now inescapable. Right. I'm reminded of the, as 
Jeremiah preaches there about the the green olive tree and how the Lord who planted them has now decreed disaster. It, it reminds me of the preaching of of John the Baptist when he talks about the axe being laid at the root of the trees and the trees that don't bear being good fruit bearing good fruit they are cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean John there stands in the line of of Jeremiah preaching against this idolatrous sin of the people who who think that they can just sort of go through the motions. And ignore the word of the Lord and everything's going to be okay. That's the problem that's happening in Jeremiah's day. It's happening in the day of John the Baptist, and it's still happening in our day today. And in the Psalms, you know, Pastor Apple, you have reference to like olive trees in the temple. And that this is also a sign of like life and beauty and the sort of gifts that God has given. And now the temple will be will be all undone. And so this roar of the great tempest, this metaphor of things being set afire and, and the destructive nature of fire um, and the branches are going to be, you know, consumed. Um, when I read that about the branches and the fire and everything being consumed, because I'm, you know, I'm looking for sort of the hope that, like you say, you're going to have to kind of wait for. But I think of the beautiful images of Isaiah that, you know, the tree and everything is going to be cut down or burned to the ground, but yet out of the stump, there will still come life and the shoot will come forth. And even in the horrible things that are to come now upon the people in their exile to Babylon and the destruction of Jerusalem, um, it is going to be set fire and it is going to be consumed, but there will still be life and there will still always be the faithful remnant within Israel, even during the time um, of the Babylonian exile. So, but it's the Lord who planted you and now he's decreed the disaster against you. And that's, I said early on, this is this blessing and curse that God is not neutral. Um, all of these promises to the fathers, all of these prophets and ones who came to call you to repentance all of the time and time again, where I was, being persistent, and I was solemnly warning you time and time again. Um, now is now is the time for the verdict, um, and God will not just be neutral in this. Really, because they're making these offerings to Baal, and we didn't really mention that. I guess in thirteen, I mean that they've set up this these the shameful God of Baal. These altars now have been erected. Um, where they're actually worshiping and sacrificing to to another God who actually doesn't exist, who can't intercede for them, and so neither will the prophet. Right. I mean that, and and not in. I mean, when Jeremiah uses the word, you know, you set these up to your your shame. These are shameful acts that they're engaging in in idolatry. It's not sort of, and maybe we have just a sanitized picture. Maybe this is just me in, in my own mind of a, you know, sort of a sanitized picture of idolatry. Oh, I'm I'm bowing down in front of a little statue. No, there's there's actually quite vile acts that are happening as a part of this idolatrous worship, and and the Lord, besides the fact that these are not real gods, He's told them not to worship them. He's He's quite right in his judgment against their idolatry. Just real briefly, I, I think you're you're exactly right to, to see at least a, a glimmer of hope there in, in this matter of the green olive tree and the planting and, and connecting to Isaiah. Uh, Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 23 uses the image as well of raising up a righteous mm -hmm. branch for the king of David. And, and I think we could connect it even to Jesus' words in John 15 where he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. That ultimately this this olive tree of the people of Israel that failed, 
this this vineyard that gets planted as to use that you know similar image ultimately it's, it's replaced by the true vine jesus christ and grafted into him then we are truly alive apart from him we can do nothing so i do think you know using the entire context of jeremiah and the entire biblical context we can see hope in the midst of of judgment but right here in jeremiah chapter 11 it is a word of law that's being spoken this is the judgment that's happening to the people of judah because they have forsaken the lord to worship idols now as the as the text continues pastor day we get some words from jeremiah that now speak to his own situation as a prophet so we're beginning again at verse 18 in jeremiah 11 the lord made it known to me and i knew then you showed me their deeds but i was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter I did not know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life and say, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. That's the rest of our text for today, Jeremiah 11, that was 18 to 23. Pastor, there's basically two parts to this last section. First, Jeremiah speaking to the Lord, and then the Lord speaking back to Jeremiah. What does Jeremiah have to say to the Lord beginning at verse 18? Well, this is uh, this is pretty amazing that, that God is revealing this. I mean, you have, I think these are kind of like two confessions. You have this confession, and you've got something similar in chapter 12, where you kind of have an invocation, complaint, prayer, and, and like a divine response. So um, that God is revealing this. So God is actually speaking, I think, to and about Jeremiah. So the Lord has made known um, to him, and he's going to show me their deeds, which I think is a horrible thing um, that Jeremiah knew. It's bad enough that God knows who we are um, and has no need that anyone needs to testify about man because God knows what is in man. I've oftentimes preached that, uh, the fact that Jesus says things like, I know you, or I know my sheep. I mean, the psalmist talks about when God knows you and he, he, he's before you and behind you and hedged you in. He says that this, such knowledge is too terrible for me that God actually knows. And that God shows this stuff to Jeremiah, that he lets him know actually how horrible the people were, uh, how far they had turned against him. Um, then that Jeremiah is like this gentle lamb who's led to the slaughter, the images of Isaiah 53 there about the Messiah. But now this is Jeremiah. He's being led like a lamb to the slaughter because I didn't know it was against me that they devised scheming. I mean, at some in some ways, Jeremiah, I don't know that he fully comprehended that they're actually going to silence him. They're, they're going to yeah. kill him. I mean, he now is this gentle lamb that's being led to the slaughter, uh, not for the sake of saving the world, as Isaiah talks about, pointing to Jesus, but they're going to kill Jeremiah because they're not going to abide this constant, incessant word coming from the Lord that they really don't care about anymore. Um, and so let us destroy the tree with its fruit. God planted the prophet. He put him there in their midst. For a, to, to be a blessing to them. And now 
you know, they're going to destroy him. Um, just like the olive tree and the good fruit, all of this stuff is going to be is going to be swept away, and he'll be he Jeremiah will be cut off from the land of the living, uh, and his name would be remembered no more. Which is rather interesting because when you read like the whole book, Pastor Apple, I think Jeremiah literally would have given his life for the people. He would have given anything for them to actually repent and believe in the Lord, and instead, they're going to kill him. I mean, they're just going to, the simplest way to be done with all this God stuff is just take out Jeremiah and we don't have to listen to his incessant uh, droning on anymore. Mm. Yeah, much, and, much like the, well, it much like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 talks about absolutely. how he wishes he could be cut off from Christ even for the sake of his own people. I think you're right. Jeremiah has a similar feeling for his own people as well. He's, he's talked about previously that looking for the balm of Gilead for his people, that this this wound that's there in his people is is so incurable, but he desires that it be cured. He, they, You get both things going on in Jeremiah that on, on the one hand, he's mourning over their sin and he wants them to repent. And at the same time, he's also mourning over the disaster that's going to befall them. And, and again, I think there is a there is almost a sense of surprise here on Jeremiah's part that that they're ready to kill him. On the one hand, the Lord told Jeremiah that that the people mm-hmm. were not going to like his message. But on the other hand, I, I think, and this maybe this is just me speaking from personal experience. And, and any Christian, we having having been given such faith from the Holy Spirit to trust that the word of God is true. When we speak the word of God, we, we simply expect that other people are going to listen as well because it, it it's right. I mean, this is what we believe. Why, why don't you believe it as well? And when that persecution comes, even though we know what our Lord has promised, there is a, a bit of surprise. And, and Jeremiah experiences that as well, it seems. But the, the key, and this I think is important, is that he takes this matter to the Lord. And so in verse 20, he actually turns yeah. this and now prays. Take us into verse 20. Yeah, and, and this commending to God his cause is significant. And I think it needs to be talked about. I know we don't have much time, but I think this passage can be a serious stumbling block to people because yeah. he, he commends them to God who judges righteous, righteously, who tests. But then Jeremiah says, let me see your vengeance upon them. Um, that is a stumbling block. You're going to get that again in chapter 12. You're going to get it in chapter 18, where Jeremiah is going to sort of Heed the Lord's vengeance upon them. And I think you got to say a couple of things so this isn't really problematic for people. One, I don't think Jeremiah is actually seeking, like, selfish revenge. He doesn't want to do this himself or for his own reason. But he believes that God is the righteous judge, and he commends them to, to his vengeance. And also, Jeremiah really doesn't complain about his personal grief. It's really... I think more complaint about the prophetic office that, which means they're complaining about God. They're not complaining about Jeremiah and his word. They're actually complaining about God and his word. And so, you know, I think to not make that a stumbling block because, you know, I mean, we got stuff in Romans 12, you know, like bless and don't curse and Jesus telling us to forgive your enemies. Um, But at the same time, like I think of Revelation 6, that may actually be worth reading. I kind of made a note that maybe we should actually just read that passage in connection with this. So I marked it here. If you just give me one second, I'll turn. This is about the saints. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So God does not allow justice to go unpunished. 
and you spoke about Amos earlier. I mean, people in this modern day and age, you, you got to choke down a lot to read Amos and about the justice of God um, and how he does not allow injustice in the world to the poor, the fatherless, the, the widow. I mean, he doesn't allow this stuff to go unpunished. So I think Jeremiah is not doing this selfishly. It's about the prophetic office. God is not going to let the justice go unpunished. And so when he says he wants to see the the vengeance upon them, I mean, it is the God who he has committed the cause, and he knows that God is now going to exact this punishment upon them. And it's, um, th- those are, those are hard, hard passages to read and hard to really try to think through the sort of situation that Jeremiah found himself in, knowing all of these things and knowing what God was about ready to do to his people. I think that's a very helpful explanation. And I, I think you're right that verse 20 and, and such verses like that, where there's a, a prayer for God's judgment to come down upon someone are difficult for us to read. But I mean, I think the way that you've explained it is very helpful that, that we should we should think about. And the way I like to think about it is that it's a prayer. Lord, set things right. You, I mean, it doesn't take much looking at this world to see that there's a lot that's wrong and, and things that we know are contrary to what God desires. And so to pray for him to set things right, that, that's a, a good and a godly prayer. Mm-hmm. Maybe part of what we need to realize when we pray that still is that sometimes what the Lord needs to set right is the sin within us. That, that sometimes the, the evil that we pray against is dwelling inside of us, and we need we need that to be fixed by the Lord as well. Pastor Day, we got about two minutes here on, on the morning, and I, I want any, to—anything left from those final verses where the Lord does promise that he will— set things right and then help us wrap things up point us to christ from jeremiah chapter 11 sure well i mean it is i don't know if it's humorous at this point but the people are identified and they're the people from his hometown i mean it's not just any old folks but anathoth is his hometown i mean similar to jesus i mean nobody's going to find any love from your hometown um the judgment's going to come he also uses this um, phrase that you guys are going to get in chapter 14, 15, and 16 several times where sword and famine are linked together, and they're really, I think, this idea of total destruction that's going to come to the people. Um, and so they're not suffering at the hands of pagans. They're actually suffering at the hand of God. And and that is going to be the most difficult thing for God's chosen people to wrestle with. And you said it before when you were just commenting. Oftentimes the sin that needs to be dealt with is not the sin that we see in everybody else. It is the sin that is within us. And oftentimes the Lord will chasten us and the suffering will come upon us that we might be all the more conformed to Christ. Um, When we want increase of faith, I was a parish pastor. I'd have people come and they'd say, Pastor, my faith is weak. I really need God to increase my faith. I said, it's a wonderful thing. You should be very careful what you ask the Lord to do, because typically God will strengthen your faith when he takes absolutely everything away from you so that you have nothing to cling to except him. And maybe that's the great word of hope in all of this, is that the punishment is coming, but God is not going to leave or forsake his people. And he's going to continue to raise up more prophets um, to share the word of the Lord with them, to bring them and to restore them what they were originally meant to do in that covenant with Moses, which was 
not to be an isolated people and just to be the chosen ones, but they were to take that message to the ends of the earth. They were to be the beacon on the hill. And Jesus will come and fill up all of those Old Testament prophets and prophecies uh, and bring them to salvation in him. So you've got a lot of great stuff lying ahead in Jeremiah, and I just appreciate being able to be on with you for a little bit today um, to look at chapter 11. Pastor Bart Day is president and CEO of the Lutheran Church Extension Fund in St. Louis, Missouri, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 23. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.